Today we have witnessed a baptism of our youngest member in this congregation, and I want to address a few words today from God's Word in regard to what our attitude should be toward these little children that God has given unto us. You know, you can tell a church's attitude toward the children of the congregation by the way in which those children are treated. Now, I'm not implying that some churches physically abuse the children of the congregation and you'd better watch out for those kinds of churches. However, I am saying that children of believing parents are being spiritually abused and robbed of their covenantal birthright week after week after week in many professing Christian churches. How so, you ask? Well, let me give you at least four ways in which children are being robbed of their spiritual birthright. First of all, by not being viewed nor treated as members of the Church of Jesus Christ. In many churches today, children within the congregation are not viewed as being members of the church. If they're not viewed as being members of the church, what are they? Well, they're outside the church. They're viewed as being outside the pale of the church. And therefore, they must be considered as heathens and as pagans until they make some knowledgeable profession of faith according to these particular churches. But dear ones, God calls covenant children my children in Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 20 through 21. He says, you bore children to me. They are mine. And Paul calls children holy. That is, children of believing parents are holy and set apart by God. It is certainly true that children must publicly acknowledge their faith in Jesus Christ. They must, as we saw today, little Stephanie entered into, well, has entered into a covenant and this was the sign of this covenant, the waters of baptism being applied to her. She is bound by this covenant. But she must yet, when she reaches years of discretion and ability where she knows and understands these covenant responsibilities in a clear way and can profess her faith in a credible way, she must stand before the congregation and acknowledge that for herself, that she herself places herself under these covenant responsibilities. She acknowledges her responsibility to follow Jesus Christ and to be faithful to Him. You see, dear ones, in the Old Covenant, God certainly considered children members of the congregation. You had household circumcision, as we uh, heard read from Genesis 17. Not only were the adult men to be circumcised, but even those who were eight days old were to be circumcised. They were considered as members of the congregation of God's people in the Old Covenant. Females were represented by their male heads. But we also see that in the renewal of the covenant, for example, in Deuteronomy 29 and in Joshua chapter 8, that all of God's people as a congregation stood before God and it specifically mentions who were there as God's congregation. Not only the adults, not only the men, but the wives and the little ones, it's clearly says stood before God as members of His congregation. We find the same thing to be true in the New Covenant as well. We find not household circumcisions, but we find household baptisms. That entire families were recognized as being in covenant with God. That certainly includes children, since they are members of the family, since they are members of the household 
children, regardless of the age, would be included in those baptisms. As in the case of Lydia in Acts 16, and Philippian jailer in Acts 16, and Stephanus in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In fact, children are specifically addressed in Paul's letters. He not only speaks to the fathers, he not only speaks to the mothers or the wives, he not only speaks to the slaves or the servants in the household, he also specifically addresses children. Children, obey your parents, the Lord says through the Apostle Paul, because they are members of his church. They are members of the congregation of God's people. And they need to hear the Lord's exhortations through his ministers unto them. The second way in which children are abused spiritually and robbed of their covenantal birthright in churches today is by not being included in the worship service with all of God's people. This naturally follows if you don't consider them to be members of the church, what right do they have to sit with God's people and to worship with God's people? Let's push them off. Let's move them into another part of the building and entertain them for an hour while the adults worship God. And so, we find... children's churches uh, with the express purpose of being able to remove them from God's people, putting them into places where they supposedly will be able to hear uh, a little lesson and to, to perhaps watch a movie, to hear some music, but they're separated from the actual worship of God's people. Again, this is not what the Scripture teaches. When God's people gather together in worship, you do not find God's people leaving the children in a nursery. You do not find God's people leaving the children in, uh, in a uh, children's church somewhere. They gathered as families, as households to worship God Almighty because the household is a covenant unit. To divide that covenant is to destroy that covenantal unity which God has established. Thirdly, children are robbed of their inheritance by not being corrected when they sin or prayed for as little brothers and sisters in Christ who need God's grace, just like the adults in the congregation. We as elders, when we go to make family visits, we should not be only, and we make this as a practice, only speaking with the the adults in the family, but we should also be gathering the children within the family so that we can instruct We can encourage them. We can ask them how they're doing in their relationship with Jesus Christ as well. They have an interest in the privileges of the church. And one of those privileges is to be instructed and taught by the elders of the church. Not just the adults, but the children as well have that privilege. And finally... Children are robbed of their spiritual inheritance by not discipling, instructing, and catechizing them as we do older children or adults, say, in family worship. Parents, do you spend time not only with the older children, but if you have to to come down to such a level to try and teach the simplest truths to your children, small as they may be, are you willing to take the time to teach them even the smallest, the the truth that they can comprehend at that particular point in their life? See, this says they are members, little members of the congregation of God's people. And we cherish them. And we love them. And we are building a generation to come 
that will love the Lord and will serve Him with all of their hearts. But if we push them off and we treat them as if they're not members, guess what? When they finally reach that age, when they're ready to make a decision for themselves, very likely we ought not to be surprised if they decide that they don't want anything to do with the church. They want nothing to do with Jesus Christ because they've not been treated as members of the church all along. What should Greg and Fran's attitude be toward little Stephanie? Believing parent, what should your attitude be toward your children today? Well, we find the answers to these questions as we learn what Christ's attitude was toward the children of believing parents. Did he view them as outside the, the pale of the church? Did he view them as second class citizens within the kingdom of God? Did he view them as less important compared to the adults in the kingdom of God? Turn with me to Mark chapter 10. This will be our text today. Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 16. <clears throat> I have just read earlier from Luke 18, which is a parallel passage to what we are reading in Mark 10. I'll be referring primarily, however, to Mark chapter 10 in my remarks today. And I'd like to consider very briefly the four sets of actors within this very brief account that forever gives the Lord's attitude toward his covenant children and how he views children. Those four sets of actors are, first of all, the parents, secondly, the disciples, thirdly, the children themselves, and finally, the Lord himself. So we'll be looking at each of these actors within this particular drama, redemptive drama that God has given to us here in Mark chapter 10. <clears throat> in Mark 10, 1, as you look at that particular verse, we find a little bit of historical background. It says, Then he arose from there and came to the region of Judea by the other side of the Jordan. Here we're informed that the Lord Jesus begins his final journey from Galilee, which was in the northern part of Palestine. He begins from Galilee, leaving Galilee in the north, and begins to travel south to Judea, to Jerusalem. This is his final journey. This journey will lead him finally to his death upon the cross, where he will offer his life in exchange for his people, where he will die to redeem his people from the curse of the law, from the condemnation of the law. <clears throat> And as the Lord is traveling from the northern part of Palestine, Galilee, to the southern part of Judea, in between is the, is the province of Samaria. Now, off to the east, you'll find here the Jordan River. Galilee, Samaria, Judea. Children, look up here. I'm giving you a little map. I want you to look. Up in the north of Palestine, again, is Galilee, in the middle is Samaria, and below is Judea. Jesus is traveling from the northern province of Galilee to the southern province of Judea. And over on the east side is the Jordan River. Jesus travels across on the other side of the Jordan River, and this is where this particular account takes place. In Perea, it says. Emporia, which is the Greek word for beyond, or on the other side. That's what Perea means, on the other side. On the other side of what? On the other side of the Jordan River is where this occurred. <clears throat> and now in Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 16, the Lord of the church forever communicates to his people how children of believing parents should be treated, how they should be viewed by God's people. 
Now, I want you to understand, before we look at our first set of actors within this, within this drama, I want you to understand, first of all, this is not simply an old covenant lesson on the place of children among God's people. You must understand that from the, from, from the start. This is decidedly covenantal, whether we're talking about the Old Covenant or whether we're talking about the New Covenant, this particular truth holds true in both covenants. It is covenantal. It is true in all of the Scripture and it is true for us as well. And the reason I say that is because the truths contained herein specifically are related to the kingdom of God. Notice what it says. What Jesus says in Mark 10, 14 and 15 about children. He says at the conclusion of verse 14, for of such is the kingdom of God. And in verse 15, assuredly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. So you must understand the kingdom of God does not simply apply to the Old Testament or to the Old Covenant. It applies to the New Testament. It applies to us now, the kingdom of God. These truths about little children are biblical. Old Testament, New Testament as well. So let us consider, first of all, the parents as those first set of actors who appear in this inspired account. Looking at verse 13, Mark 10, 13, it says, Then they brought young children to him that he might touch them. As the Lord concludes his teaching on marriage in the previous verses, of Mark chapter 10, parents, and I would emphasize here when I speak of parents, I'm talking not simply about mothers bringing their children, but I believe that what is in view here, parents are both mothers and fathers because the the, uh, participle that's used here is in the, the masculine gender. Now, in a feminine gender, it could only refer to mothers bringing their children to the Lord. But in the masculine gender, it could either refer to only fathers bringing their children to the Lord, or it could refer to both fathers and mothers bringing their children to the Lord. And so, most likely what we have here are both fathers and mothers bringing their children to the Lord in order for Him to bless them says that, <clears throat> that he might, in verse uh, 13, that he might touch them. It says in the parallel passage in Matthew 19:13 that he might put his hands on them and pray. As we look at Mark 10:16, we see that actually what he did was, It says, and he took them up in his arms, put his hands on them, and blessed them. That's what the Lord actually did to these little children. Now, the ages of these children that were brought to Jesus, in order that he might bless them, uh, was very young. These were extremely young children indeed. In fact, we find in Mark 10, 16, it says, And he took them up in his arms. Now, that's not probably going to be a 12 or a 13 year old child that you take up in your arms, but a very small child that he took up in his arms. And in the parallel passage, which we read earlier in Luke 18, 15, Luke calls them infants. He calls them babes, very small little children that these parents brought to Jesus in order that he might bless them. How interesting that these believing parents judged that the Lord was able to, to convey spiritual blessings to their infant children. 
Infant children, if you consider this, infant children who were certainly not conscious of who Christ was. Infant children who could not express their faith in Jesus Christ as of yet. Infant children who had no idea what was being done unto them when Christ placed His almighty hand upon them and blessed them and prayed over them. But nevertheless, infant children that were brought to the Lord Jesus Christ by these believing parents that Jesus might bless them. We have accounts where in the Gospels, where parents brought their children to Christ or, on the other hand, brought Christ to their children in order that He might heal them of illnesses that they had. That He might heal and deliver them from demon possession or that He might even raise them from the dead. But here, in this particular account, believing parents come not pleading for Christ to pour out upon their children the physical blessings of life, the material blessings of life, but they crave from the Lord that He will have mercy upon their children and pour out upon their children spiritual blessings. The spiritual blessings of eternal life. For you see, dear ones, these parents understood that children of believing parents have an interest in the covenant of grace which God made with believing Abraham, who was the father of all who believe, and with all of his descendants. They understood that their children had an interest in the covenant of grace. They understood that their children had an interest by God's rich mercy in the intercessory ministry of Jesus Christ. That Christ could pray effectually for these children and that they would therefore be blessed. They understood that. They understood that, that these, these parents understood as well that their children's highest interests were in view in pleading for these spiritual blessings. They were not, understand very clearly, as they brought their children to the Lord, they were not simply bringing their children to dedicate their children to the Lord. They brought their children to the Lord, it says, that He might touch them, that He might pray over them, that He might bless them. And so this is not a mere dedication ceremony. They are looking for something from the Lord, something objective on the part of God to be poured out upon their children, His blessings. Christian parents, your, infant, your infants likewise, your little children likewise have a place in the covenant of grace. Your infants have an interest in the spiritual blessings of Jesus Christ. But Christian parents, understand this as well. You have a great responsibility before the Lord God to bring them to Christ for His blessing. Just as these parents in Mark chapter 10 brought their children to Christ for His blessing. It is your responsibility as Christian parents to bring your children to Christ for His blessing. His blessing through baptism as we saw today. To bring your children to this place where the sign and seal of the covenant of grace is applied to your children. That's bringing your children to Jesus Christ for His blessing. To bring them to Christ furthermore for His blessing 
through your own consistent training and discipline and instruction and catechizing and prayer for and with them and the singing of God's praises in psalms and family worship. That is bringing your children as well to Jesus Christ for His blessing. And you bring your children to Christ for His blessing as well through teaching them how to worship the living God in corporate worship. Going over the sermons with them after you return home on the Lord's Day. Teaching them what it means to keep the Sabbath day holy. That is bringing them face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ and His covenant blessings. And finally, it is to bring them to Christ for His blessing through the setting of an example of godliness in the way in which you live before your children. Where you can say to your children, follow me, children, as I follow Jesus Christ. Be ye imitators of me, even as I am an imitator of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's bringing your children to the Lord Jesus Christ as well. I can tell you very clearly, parents, your children are very carefully watching all that you do. They are watching you and they are listening to the excuses you make for not keeping the commandments of God. They are watching to see if you repent because they know what you have taught them. And they're good learners. And they're good observers. And they see how inconsistent you and I are in our living before them the gospel. Not that we by any means will be perfect parents, But do we acknowledge to them, I sinned? Or do we make excuses for our sins as to why we can't come to worship on the Lord's Day? Do we make excuses why we can't be here? Do we make excuses for getting angry, being grouchy? I haven't had enough sleep. I don't feel well. Do we make excuses for our sins? Your children are watching. You're setting an example in all of those ways, parents. And you are either leading them to Christ for blessing or you're prohibiting and preventing them to come to Christ for that blessing in the way in which you live before them. Parents, you cannot expect God to pour forth His blessings upon your children if you are not bringing your children to Christ, that He might bless them. You are the means that God has chosen. God does many times even work outside of His normal means to bring people to Jesus Christ. But this is the primary means by which your children will receive the blessings that Christ would pour out upon them is through you. You have brought them into this world You have passed on to them a sinful nature. If you say and if you mean that you love these little ones, you must then see it as your greatest responsibility to them to bring them to Christ for His blessing, as did these parents in Mark chapter 10. Moving on now to the second set of actors in this drama, the disciples themselves. And in Mark chapter 10, verse 13, we find after it says, then they brought young children to him that he might touch them. Now notice the response of the disciples. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them. The disciples rebuked those who brought them. Once again, the disciples are viewed as thinking in this particular passage, thinking they know what is best and right for Christ. 
to do in a given situation. You know, this isn't the first time they thought they knew what was right for Christ to do in a given situation. All you have to do is to remember in Matthew chapter 15, verse 23. You remember the Syrophoenician woman who came pleading with the Lord that the Lord would have mercy upon her daughter, that he would heal her. And what were the disciples doing? Get away. The Lord doesn't have time for you. Get away. You're making a nuisance of yourself. Of yourself. You remember in the case of James and John in Luke chapter 9, verse 54, when they passed through the province of Samaria. And a Samaritan city did not receive them. And James and John said, Lord, would you have us call down fire to consume the city? Right here on the spot? See, they thought they could tell Christ what was the right way to respond to that kind of a situation. Or you remember the Apostle Peter. Jesus had just shared with Peter, I have to die, but I will be raised from the dead after three days. And Jesus, and, and, uh, Jesus tells Peter, uh, or actually Peter says to Jesus after hearing this, Peter says, but Lord, no, that can't be. And Jesus says to him, Get thee behind me, Satan. Very strong words. He was not saying that Peter was Satan, but what he was trying to prevent, that is, the death and the resurrection of the Lord, was satanic. It was to keep Christ from fulfilling His will. The very reason that He came to this world you see, they may have been very sincere and zealous in their words and actions, but it was a zeal without knowledge. And a zeal without knowledge is always very, very dangerous. Calvin makes this particular comment concerning the action of the apostles of the disciples here in Mark chapter 10. John Calvin says this, Listen closely. <clears throat> they who judge of Christ according to the feeling of their flesh are unfair judges, for they constantly deprive him of his peculiar excellencies and on the other hand ascribe under the appearance of honor what does not at all belong to him. And therefore, let us learn not to think of him otherwise than what he himself teaches. And not to assign to him a character different from what he has received from the Father. Dear ones, you see, this is where all heresy in doctrine and in worship begins. We conceive of a Christ in our own imagination. We conceive of a Christ contrary to what is revealed in the Word of God. And we impose what we believe Christ should do in this situation. We, we impose upon the Lord Jesus Christ how He should receive whatever we offer to Him because we, we're sincere. Because we're zealous. Or even because we do it in the name of Christ. But Christ does not receive all worship simply because it is offered in His name. If it is not in line with His character and with His commandments, He will not receive it. In fact, He will rebuke it. He will become indignant about it, even as He was indignant with the disciples who thought they could tell Jesus how he should respond in this situation. <clears throat> Mark 10.14 says he was greatly displeased. The Lord Jesus was greatly displeased that the disciples rebuked the parents in bringing their children unto himself. He was indignant he was grievously vexed, other synonyms for this particular word. 
In fact, this is the only time in all of the New Testament where this word is used, this word that has to do with indignation, this word that has to do with being greatly displeased or grievously vexed. It's the only time that it's used with Jesus as the subject of that indignation where Jesus himself is said to have been indignant. And he was indignant because his own disciples were forbidding these little ones to be brought to him in order that he might bless them. Now, why was the Lord so indignant with behavior of the disciples? For the same reason, dear ones, that God was indignant with Moses when Moses had neglected to apply the sign of the covenant to his son. Remember, God was so indignant in that particular situation that he sought to kill Moses for his sinful neglect. Moses had prevented God's means of grace from being applied to his son. And likewise, Christ was indignant that the disciples had prevented these children from receiving the means of God's grace. This, this blessing appointed unto them. We must learn, dear ones, that Christ yearns. He yearns for His covenant children. We, poss- we cannot possibly understand wholly how Christ yearns for His covenant children. But He yearns for His covenant children. And the disciples stood in the way and prevented them from coming unto Him for this blessing. In fact, we find in Luke chapter 17, verses 1 through 3, dear ones, that anyone who would put a stumbling block or an offense before one of these little ones, it would be better for him to have a millstone hung around his neck and cast into the sea. That's what Jesus says. God takes it very seriously when we offend and put stumbling blocks to sin, when we prevent them from coming to the Lord Jesus Christ for that blessing which he promises. God takes it very seriously. The third set of actors in this text, which we're looking at now, were the children themselves. And the Lord Jesus says in Mark 10:14, "For of such is the kingdom of God. For of such of, as these, these little children, these infants, of such as these is the kingdom of God." Christ gives to these little infants of believing parents the highest acclamation and honor given to any of his creatures. Of such is the kingdom of God. Jesus categorically proclaims that the kingdom of God is inhabited by such infants as those who are brought to Him for His blessing. This is what the kingdom of God is composed of. These little ones, they're included amongst all of the adults and all of the young people these little ones as well. Now, is such a statement as what Jesus uttered concerning these that were brought to him, the children of believing parents who were brought to him, is such a statement, such as the kingdom of heaven ever uttered about the children of unbelieving parents? Do we ever find that statement or anything close to it in the word of God? I know of no such passage in all of the biblical revelation. It is uttered with regard to the children of believing parents, for they are in covenant with the Lord God. We could survey all of biblical revelation. We have looked, we won't do that, but we could survey biblical revelation We've seen, for example, how in Genesis 17, the sign of the covenant was to apply to children, to male children, eight days of age. We find, for example, in 2 Samuel 12.23, when the son of David and Bathsheba dies 
right after birth. And David pleads with God to save this child's life. And God, nevertheless, takes this child from this world. David says, I, the child, will not come back to me, but I will go to be with this child. He was looking forward to that time when he would be united with this covenant child, a child of a believing parent. We find in Malachi 2.15, That the Lord says that the reason that God brought man and woman together was to produce a holy seed. A holy seed. Children in covenant with Him. We find in Acts 2.39 that Peter says on the day of Pentecost that the promise not only applies to you adults, but to your children as well. To your children as well. These promises of the Spirit. We've already seen in 1 Corinthians 7.14 that children of believing parents are said to be holy. And this is all because, as it says in Galatians 3.20, that all who are in Christ are heirs of the promises that were made to Abraham. Jesus Christ is the seed of Abraham and all of those who are in Christ are heirs, the promises made to Abraham and to his seed and to his children. And so this is perfectly consistent what Jesus says with all that we find in biblical revelation. Now, dear ones, though these passages do not give us warrant to presume that every child of every believer is regenerated or even will be regenerated by the Spirit. We think of the case of Esau and Jacob, two sons born to Isaac. One was not chosen. The other one was chosen and chosen from before the foundations of the world. Even though that is the case, and we know that salvation is still absolutely dependent upon the sovereign grace of God in election and in redemption for our children. Nevertheless, listen closely, nevertheless, we are encouraged in the word of God to cast ourselves upon God's word and to trust that it is His divine purpose to raise up from homes of believing parents, believing children. That is His purpose, to raise up believing children from believing parents. Parents who are faithful to their covenant vows which they made to God to bring their children to the Lord Jesus Christ that He might bless them. You see, this is the general rule that the children of believing parents will be faithful to the Lord, will not turn their backs on the covenant, train up a child in the way in which he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. That's the rule. And what that means, the, the, the word for child there, not simply means do your training your, uh, with your children while they're infants and when they're old, they'll follow the Lord. No, the word child there has in view their entire childhood and it even means one who is uh, an adult yet under your roof. It has to do with one who, as long as he is under your roof, you train him up in the way in which he should go. And when he is old, he won't depart from that. You be faithful as parents in training them. See, when children of believing homes turn their backs on the Lord, that should be the exception. What we see happening all around us, I think, should drive us all to our knees to realize that there is a covenant promise here on our parts as parents to be faithful. Not perfect, but faithful in bringing our children to Jesus Christ for His blessing. 
Those who do not believe, and there are many professing Christians today who would say, we don't believe in giving uh, our, our children uh, the covenant sign of baptism. We believe that baptism is reserved for only those who are old enough to profess faith in Jesus Christ. We don't believe that that is something given to infants. And they would quote a passage like Mark 16, 16, which says, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. They would contend that baptism, according to Christ's own command, follows those who believe. Those who believe and are baptized. Baptism should always follow faith or belief. These professing Christians would say. Now, on the one hand, I do grant that faith and then baptism is the pattern for adult discipleship. That is the pattern for adult discipleship. Those who are converted, once they're adults, they believe and then they're baptized. But on the other hand, I deny, I do not grant that a profession of faith and then baptism is the pattern for child discipleship within our covenant families. I do not grant that. <clears throat> and let me tell you why. Mark 16, 16 clearly has adults in view rather than infants in view. For if one must give a profession of faith before he can be baptized, and he must be, give a profession of faith and be baptized before he can be saved, then I submit to you that no infant dying before birth or dying after birth, no child dying before making a public profession of faith or no extremely handicapped person who cannot make a public profession of faith can be saved. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. That's what the scripture says at that point. I submit to you that what is in view is the adult pattern for discipleship, not the children's pattern for discipleship. <clears throat> we know that cannot be true, that children are not saved apart from professing their faith. For we already saw how David said he would go to be with his child. Born, just recently born, an infant. We have seen in Mark 10.14 that Jesus says about the infants that he held in his arms, of such is the kingdom of God, not able to make a profession of faith. If that were true, only young people and adults capable of making a credible profession of faith could be heirs to the kingdom of God. What I submit to you in this particular passage, Mark 16, 16, it's very similar to what we find in 2 Thessalonians 3.10. We find in 2 Thessalonians 3.10 a command. And that command says, If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. Does that mean we ought to starve our children because they can't work? That's intended for adults. And in like manner, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. That is intended for adults because otherwise you rule out any possibility of children being heirs the kingdom of God. Those dying in infancy going to be with the Lord in heaven. Finally, let me say, just before I move to my last point, that if indeed children, as we have seen, children of believing parents can be saved in Christ and are saved in Christ because they cannot be saved on any other basis. Infants, because they're not morally neutral, children are conceived 
in sin. They are born in sin. They have imputed to them Adam's sin. They are born with a sinful nature. They are not morally neutral. The only way they can be saved is through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They must be not only in Adam, they must be taken from being in Adam as their covenant head and they must be placed in Christ as their covenant head, just like the adults must, if adults are to be saved. The same thing is true of children. And so Jesus, because of his mercy and grace, he saves even little children by having died for them. And he makes covenant with them even before they realize all the implications of that covenant. And he administers to them his blessing through baptism even before they realize all that that implies. The last point. This is the last actor within this drama, the Lord Jesus himself. Mark 10, 16. Jesus it says, and he took them up in his arms, put his hands on them, and blessed them. This was the act of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. You see, dear ones, Jesus Christ is that mediator, as we've already said, of the new covenant. And all the spiritual blessings that flow to adults as a result of the new covenant flow to children who are in covenant with them as well through this covenant of grace through the mediator of the new covenant, the Lord Jesus Christ. If your children are to be blessed, they will only be blessed in Jesus Christ. Outside of Jesus Christ, there is only cursing. There is only judgment because we are judged for our sins. But in Jesus Christ, we are cleared. We are redeemed. We are clothed in His glorious righteousness. Dear Christian parents, the Lord Jesus considers these little ones in our church, like Stephanie, to be His children. To be His little lambs that He will shepherd. And He will bless them. But again, I say, it is your responsibility to bring them to Christ for that blessing. In conclusion, note the very solemn words of the Lord Jesus in Mark 10.15. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. In what way are we to be like little children? If we are ever to enter the kingdom of God, we must enter it as those who have received of God's grace Mercy upon mercy, rather than thinking like adults that we can work or earn our way into the kingdom of God. Just as those infants that Christ took into his arms and freely, as those infants freely received the blessing, unaware of what was going on. So you, as God's people, must be like little children, casting away all of your own Good deeds, thinking that you can earn your way into heaven. And you must come as helpless people in order to receive the blessings of Christ. You cannot come boasting about how great you are or how lucky God is to have you in His kingdom. You must come as a little child, simply willing to receive the blessing of God who must give all blessings because you can contribute or add nothing to your salvation. Can you think of a better picture of that truth? That must be true of all of us than bringing a child of this age to the Lord Jesus Christ who does not realize even what is going on and having that blessing of baptism applied to that child. I would make one last, one last illustration or application, and that is simply this. We, as a congregation, <clears throat> and as your elders, 
have many issues before us. And by God's grace, we are tackling those issues, we are studying those issues, but we as elders must come to the Lord Jesus Christ as little children. We must come to Christ like little children, crying and saying, I can't feed myself unless you feed me. Unless you give to me the truth and open my mind, I'm like a little child and I can't understand it. We must come to the Lord Jesus Christ acknowledging, dear ones, that everything we have comes from Him. And as we approach these difficult issues, doctrines that are before us, teachings, as we seek to evaluate them, as we seek to apply them by God's grace in this congregation and in this church for His glory, you must be like little children as well. Saying, I can't not understand these things apart from you, the Spirit of God giving me illumination. I must come like a little child. Jesus said in Matthew 11, listen closely, verse 25, At that time Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent, and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for, it, for so it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and he to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me, like little children, like babes, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Dear ones, come to the Lord Jesus Christ as little children. There is no other way of entering the kingdom of God. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank You and praise You this day that You have condescended unto our ignorance, unto our futile ways in which we have lived in this world. You have shown us Your truth that we must be like little children. And when we are like little children, You will bless. And as we bring our little children to You, You will bless them. And so, Father, we pray that these truths would greatly encourage Your people today. And where we have failed, where we are off the mark, where we don't even give a care, O oh God, have mercy upon us and, and break our hearts. Humble us before You and give to us hearts that are willing to receive these truths like babes, not like the wise, the so-called wise and prudent of this world who are blinded to the truth. But Lord God, have mercy upon us that we might live before you and bring glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-450, 3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail 
at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.